Well, good evening. This evening, we continue what I believe is our third installment of our studies in the Song of Solomon. Uh, Myrtha will have the slides of the translation by Dr. S. Craig Glickman that I'll be using to teach from. We'll be starting on slide 18, I believe, tonight and going right through to slide 25. Uh, But let's do this. Let's just remind ourselves that this love poem, this book of mystery and of imagination and of romance is really so beneficial to those of us who are in love relationships or would like to be, but it's always beneficial to all Christians because all Christians have someone who loves them more than life itself. And we, as the bride of Christ, have a relationship with the bridegroom, who is Christ. And so that's the application, the the allegory here, but the truth of this love poem, the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is that it's helping us to see what true human romantic love should be like. So if you are hoping to be in a relationship like this, or if you are in a relationship like this, or you're married, uh, you hopefully are in a relationship like this, this book is incredibly helpful to understanding relationships, specifically uh, romantic relationships. So what we want to do is we want to start by looking at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, and we'll be looking at just two snapshots this evening. One of the snapshots in verses 8 through 14 is a snapshot taken by the bride. Now, what I've shared in the past about these snapshots is that there are 10 in chapters 1 through 3, snapshots, if you will, taken of particular aspects of the relationship. Maybe even a snapshot of the bride or a snapshot of the groom or a snapshot of their relationship. This particular snapshot that we're going to look at first is a snapshot taken by the bride, but it's of the character of their relationship, and specifically the communication in their relationship. Now, one thing you've probably figured out if you're in a relationship, or you've been in a relationship, is that communication is the most important part of a relationship. There are various different types of communication. But communication, if the communication is bad, the relationship is bad. If the communication is non-existent, the relationship is non-existent. So if the communication is good and fulfilling, the relationship is good and fulfilling. So we're going to see that first. And then in verses 15 through 17, we'll see our second snapshot. Again, a snapshot like a picture taken of their relationship, but specifically as it relates to their commitment. So we're going to look at their communication and their commitment. And of course, The difference between a relationship that will go the distance, that will survive, and a relationship that won't, is commitment. Commitment hangs in there when the relationship doesn't have all the the excitement or the warm feelings of passion, because relationships can't sustain that level of excitement and passion every single moment. It just doesn't work that way. And if you're in a relationship, you experience moments, but Clearly, it's got to be more than just, oh, it's, you know, I'm excited. We're, you know, we're going on a date because when you get married, you, you can't be on a date. You got to do the wash. You, you know, you can go on dates, clearly, but you can't stay in that realm constantly. There has to be the mundane things. There has to be the going to work and the, you know, taking care of the things in the home. And so a relationship has to be more, so much more than just 
those exciting moments, which clearly need to be there. So you have a communicative relationship and a committed relationship, and these snapshots give us an understanding of what is an ideal relationship in God's word, an ideal romantic relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite, but also indicative of the relationship between Christ and his church. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd help us this evening. Give us understanding. Give us the ability to apply these things to our hearts and to our lives in all of the ways that we've already mentioned. Uh, But give us understanding now as we focus in on communication and commitment. May we understand how important that is in our relationship with you. Staying in constant communication with you and being committed to you will help us to maintain a relationship with you that is everything that you desire us to have with you. And so, Lord God, we pray that we would glean much this evening. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's uh, start in verses 8 through 9. And let's see that it says, The bride is now speaking to herself in soliloquy, that is, she's sharing for us what she's thinking. She says, the sound of my beloved, behold, he is coming, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Now, this opens up this part of a relationship, and there are are cycles of romance, uh, essential aspects of of romance, and also cycles of love that we're going to look at in this section. That is, there are things that romance must contain if it's going to be romance. And there are things that must happen if it's going to be love. And we're going to look at the three aspects here, but let's start by looking at the first. It's expectation with longing. Expectation with longing. You should not be dreading spending time with the person you're in love with. You should have an expectation with a longing, a desire to be with them. And you can see here that she is excited that he is coming to her home. He's coming to her house to spend time with her. She's excited about this. And he is excited to see her as well as he's moving with great haste. So this poetic description, very much the picture of a countryside in the rural area of Israel. But still it explains how she's so excited and how he is so excited that they're going to spend time together. So the first part of this communication is that they actually enjoy spending time together. They long for it. They look forward to it. They expect, with expectation, they desire to spend time together. He can hardly wait to see her. He peers through the entrance to her home to see if she's home. And what he's doing is coming to spend time with her. And so that sets this expectation with longing uh, for us to go to the next section, which is verses 10 through 13. And here's where we really strike that chord of communication. And it's communication, but it's communication with patience. I'm going to say that it's very difficult to communicate well if you're not a patient person. If you're short or you don't like to talk or share your thoughts or your heart, it's very difficult to communicate. And we all have found ourselves there at times. But the idea of being uh, patient, it affords you the opportunity and the desire and the willingness to communicate. And so we see this in verses 10 through 13. And here what the bride does in soliloquy, she's quoting the king. So she's sharing with us words that he said to her. And sometimes it's helpful to receive 
the words that someone else said through a third party sort of sharing with you what they said. And that that is the case here. And she says in verses 10 through 13, My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my fair one, and come, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The blossoms have appeared in the land, and the time of singing is come, and the cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its figs, and the vines in blossom give forth fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. So this is an invitation, and she's sharing with us that invitation that she received. Remember, there was that expectation with longing. She, he, they desired to be together. But now you have communication. And isn't it interesting? We're hearing what the bridegroom said from the bride to whom he spoke. So the communication is so clear that we're getting it from the person who heard it, not just from the person who said it. That is very important. If you don't communicate clearly or properly, there's confusion then about what you're saying and what you mean. But if you are a good communicator and you patiently communicate how you feel, the person not only is able to receive what you're saying, but actually communicate it to others. That's how you know you truly communicated well. One of the ways you know is if, if, the, if you've said what you've said so well and so patiently that the person doesn't forget it, understands what you said, and can repeat it back to you or to someone else, you have truly communicated well. And we see that that much is clear. She's quoting his words to her from memory. She knows what he said. She remembers what he said. And she is very pleased to share it with us. He is poetically describing the season of spring, probably late spring, early summer, in his invitation to her. And he's pleading with her to emerge from the house and join him in the gardens, which was appropriate and features prominently in this Eastern love poem. There's a lot of uh, spending time outside in nature and in the gardens, and uh, this happens a lot. There's, there's a countryside that's described many times uh, because it is a poem and it's designed to invoke uh, pictures in your mind of a very serene and beautiful setting, which makes sense. Now notice, he says the winter is past. And uh, we would really like to be there tonight, wouldn't we? The winter is past. Well, it is a little warmer tonight. But, and I was really happy about that. But, but we're looking forward to that time probably in March or April when we can say the winter has passed. No more 15-degree days, right? Hopefully. Notice the rain is over and gone because there was a rainy season in Israel that was in early spring. So you went from a colder time, a cooler time, a colder time to a rainy time, which was necessary for agriculture and for planting. But then things start to clear up and and things start to bloom. So we're told exactly when uh, this conversation is taking place. The winter is past. The rain is over and gone. And notice the the blossoms have appeared in the land. The time of singing has come. So they would sing and, and rejoice that winter was over. They made it through a winter and now they're going into spring and ultimately a time of planting and a time of harvest. And notice the cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our land which would take place at this time of the year. The fig tree forms its figs. That doesn't mean you can eat them yet, because if you know anything about fig trees, they don't actually 
produce figs that you can eat until much later in the summer, late summer generally, sometimes early fall. But notice it doesn't say that the figs were available. It says the fig tree forms its figs, starting to form the figs. The vines in blossom give forth fragrance. If you know about vineyards, you know there's a time of year where the vines blossom. That doesn't mean they're going to produce grapes just yet. That will take place later in the year. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. So very poetically telling us when this is, and more importantly, a desire to enjoy outside with his beloved, with the woman he loves. And this is being shared with us from the woman herself. Again, this is a snapshot, a picture taken by the bride of how they communicate in their relationship. Now, communication with patience, coupled with expectation, with longing, builds a degree of a desire to discover more about that person. And one of the ways you'll know that you truly are in love is you, you're not going to know everything about that person ever. There's things you're going to find out throughout your life. It's certainly after decades of being together, you know most of it, but. You should always be finding out new things or as you grow as an individual and you discover things about yourself that you didn't know. And I hope you're all growing as individuals. Those things will be shared with the person that you love. And they'll begin to discover as you discover new things about you and about your relationship. And that's good. That's all good. So the third aspect here, we had expectation with longing. We had communication with patience. We have discovery with reward. And it is incredibly rewarding to discover things about someone you care about. It should be. If you are apathetic or indifferent to that person, you don't love them. But if you truly love them, then you want to hear, how was your day? How did things go? You know, those are the kinds of questions a person who cares about someone else asks. You ask questions. You try to discover things about that person, even if it's as simple as, what was your day like? You know, it's very important that we look to discover things, to reach in the heart of the person we care about and ask questions, really, truly ask questions. And it's rewarding. Now, he describes in verse 14, he says, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks, in the hidden places of the steep pathway, Let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. So here you have this desire, really. And I've said this before. There should be desire. There should be desire in a love relationship. There really should be. And if there isn't, why isn't there? There should be. So he describes her in, again, a very poetic way as a dove hidden in the rock cliffs, heard but not seen. Now, why would that be? Because he's inviting her out. He can hear her voice, but she is not outside yet with him. So you see there's this invitation, and it's given to us so that we'll understand their communication. I think it's important to note that they're communicating well, even without face-to-face contact. He describes her as a dove hidden in the rock cliffs, heard but not seen, and he desires to see her. Why? Because she's lovely, and he enjoys looking at her. Now, let me say this as well. There's a difference between desiring someone and lusting after them. I think in the church, we tend to confuse those things. So in other words, if you find someone attractive, 
That's not lust. That's, that's attraction. It becomes lust when you want to use that person or take from that person selfishly. But if you desire to be with that person and desire to look at that person, it's not a bad thing. It's not even a sinful thing. Uh, now, let me qualify that in a love relationship. If you're married and you're already in a love relationship or you're engaged or you're dating and, and, and this becomes a part of your character towards other people, it's not that the feeling's wrong as much as it's inappropriate. So we understand that there's, a, there's an appropriate place and an appropriate time in relationship for this feeling, this attraction. But it's not lust, not at all. He desires to see her. Why? She's lovely. He likes to look at her. And enjoying looking at someone you care about is, again, not lust. It's, it's a sincere attraction, and it's a good thing. He also desires to hear her. Why? Because her voice is sweet, and he enjoys listening to her. He enjoys com- communication with her. So he communicates that to her, and then she communicates that to us so that we'll understand the communicative aspects of their relationship. They desire to communicate. Why? Why do they desire to communicate? In order to discover each other over time. And this is why dating is so important. Call it what you like. Courtship, dating, it's so important. Sadly, in the world today, and hopefully not in the church, but I imagine, yes, sometimes in the church, People start to be attracted to one another, and and rather than continuing that communication, they jump right to passion. That is, they get physically involved uh, before marriage and sexually involved before marriage, and at that point, they stifle communication. They actually begin to destroy the relationship because rather than continuing to communicate and to discover who this person is without being intimate, they go right to intimacy, and now the discovery aspect has been stifled. Uh, it, it, it's not going to happen once you jump right to what should only be in marriage. And so many people in the world, and some in the church, they get physically involved, and then they wonder why they don't have good communication. I've spoken to people who have chosen to keep themselves pure, which should be all Christians, before they get married. And they all say the same thing, generally. And it's that the relationship grew so much because they were not involved physically. They really could only communicate verbally, and maybe somewhat physically, but not not intimately, not sexually. But they could communicate in such a way that they learned so much about each other, and they would not have learned that if they jumped right into sex and a sexual relationship. I've spoken to people who've lived that way in the past and then have come to Christ and had new relationships, and they recognize the difference right away and how much better it is to really, truly know someone before you become too passionate and actually to wait till marriage so that you're experiencing passion in the confines of commitment, which we're going to talk about next. So these ideals are given to us so that we can experience all that God has for us in romantic relationships. So they desire to communicate, that they might discover each other over time, and they desire to spend a great deal of time together sharing the joys of life. 
And that's what will happen if you allow the, what we call the essential aspects of romance and the cycle of love to do what it's supposed to do. I'm going to remind you, do you remember, uh, she said in verse 5, she says it in verse 5 of chapter 3, but she said it in the previous part of this chapter, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, not to arouse, not to awaken love until it pleases. She says that multiple times. In other words, don't get physically or sexually, let me be clear, sexually involved until you're married, until there's commitment in place. That's the bride adjuring us that no matter how much you desire those things, and you should, you don't want to experience those things until the time is right, which has to be after you've made a commitment to each other. And by commitment, I mean marriage. So that may sound a little old-fashioned or archaic, but it doesn't change the truth. There are people that rip themselves off of what could be a fantastic relationship simply because they want to be physical before they even know the person properly, before they've committed their life to them. Okay? Those things have to be in place if you're going to experience all that God has for you in romantic relationships. So let's recap. There's fulfillment in romantic relationships because this relationship is filled with the essential aspects of romance they were fulfilled. What were those aspects of romance? Expectation. Expectation. Communication. And discovery. Those things should be in a romantic relationship. Expectation. And if you just jump right to a romantic relationship being physical and passionate, where's the expectation? There, there really is no expectation. Communication gets stifled if you become uh, sexually involved before marriage. And, and where's the discovery after you get married? Is there really any discovery? You've already been there. So you see, in order for romance to truly be experienced, expectation, communication, and discovery have to take place in, in that appropriate way before marriage, before commitment. So honestly, people who jump to this level of physical intimacy before they're married are ripping themselves off of what we call the essential aspects of romance. So when people do that and then they wonder why, yeah, they have sex, but they don't have romance, well, that's why. That is exactly why. Now, the relationship also experienced the most important cycle of love, and that is a longing with patience that results in reward. A longing with patience that results in reward. So that's why we break it down. Expectation with longing, communication with patience, and discovery with reward. If these things, these principles, are in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, we can call that relationship a communicative relationship or a relationship with good communication. Amen? Okay, let's go to the next section. We're only going to look at two of these this evening, so this is the second now. And we've talked a little bit about it, commitment, because, listen, communication is essential, but so is commitment. At a certain point, the communication in the relationship should lead you to want to make a commitment. Now, I know people, I've met people, that uh, they get physically involved, so they have really, really long engagements because... I mean, they're not in any rush, right? 
But I, I know people that, uh, you know, they have decent relationships, but they, they haven't made a public commitment. They haven't gotten married. They, they, they don't really, they might even live together. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about people who are Christians or in the church, but believe it or not, I know a lot of people. Not all of them are Christians. <laughs> not all of them go to church. And I've seen that you have these relationships, and they could even be really good relationships, but without that commitment, it's almost like, have you ever had a bowl or a coffee mug that had a hairline fracture? And you see it, and you think, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You drink maybe a hundred times out of this cup, and then one day, or out of this bowl, the crack just gives way. Because the heat and the cold, and, you know, washing it, and putting hot food in it, or cold food or cold drink, after a while, the stresses on that cup or mug or bowl finally cause it to break because there was a fracture there, very small, maybe couldn't even see it, and it just gave way. That's what will ultimately happen to a relationship that experiences all of the elements of a relationship that we've talked about, but never reaches a place of true commitment. Inevitably, that's what happens. Now, you might say, oh, but, but Pastor, I know people that have been together decades, and they're, they're, you know, they live like they're married. They're ma- you know, basically married, but they don't have a piece of paper. Well, a piece of paper doesn't really make you married. I mean, legally it does. So I suspect that even without a piece of paper, if you've made a commitment and you're living that way, maybe you're not married in the eyes of the state. I'm not going to argue whether you're married in the eyes of God because I can't. It's not as if a pastor validates that in such a way that means, okay, now you're married in the eyes of God. You know, there are some people that get married, some Christians that get married, and they don't believe the state should be involved in their relationship. So they get married in a church or by a pastor, but they don't get legally married. Uh, I'm legally married, but some people don't think that's necessary. Does that mean they're not married in the eyes of God? I'm not going to argue that case. So the truth is, if you're truly married, you're truly committed then, of course, the relationship is going to be good. But imagine if every day you get up, you just never know whether that person's going to up and leave. Or you're together, but you're kind of not together because you kind of still live your own lives. You're not really a couple. You are, but you're not. That's what I mean by that hairline fracture because eventually that gives way unless you remedy that relationship by making a commitment. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit generous and say, legal marriage isn't the issue, but marriage is the issue. Marriage in the eyes of God is the issue. Okay, I really truly believe in our culture it should be legal, but I'm not gonna impose that on anybody. As much as I'm gonna say, it needs to be a committed relationship before the eyes of God, married in the eyes of God. Amen. So that's what I'm saying. Okay, so let's talk about commitment before we close. We see this snapshot, and this snapshot's actually taken by both the bridegroom and the bride. And in verses 15 through 17, we see the character of a committed relationship. Look at verse 15. We'll look at that first. He says, Let us catch the foxes, the little foxes who ruin vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Now, this is allegory. There's a lot of this here. He's not actually talking about foxes, and he's actually not talking about vineyards. But he's speaking of foxes in a vineyard, uh, and he's likening it unto, through metaphor, he's likening it unto 
the dangers in, in relationships and their relationships. So their relationships, the vineyard, the foxes, are those things that might destroy their relationship. This is poetry, so we shouldn't be surprised that it uses metaphor to communicate truth. That should be expected. What we see in verse 15 here from the bridegroom is a desire to protect. It's actually both of them. They both desire to protect the relationship. Now, if you don't value something, you don't protect it. If you don't like your car and you want someone to steal it, then you leave your car out in the parking lot over here uh, and you don't lock it up. And then one day when someone takes it, maybe you're relieved. I don't suggest you do that. Be better off selling your car. But if you don't value something, you don't protect it. But if you value something, just to follow along the lines of a car analogy, you lock it. Maybe you have one of those bars on the steering wheel. You have an alarm. Maybe you have a kill switch. When you park at the mall, you park in the last spot all the way away from the entrance to Macy's so that no one can ding your car. When you value something, that's the point. You protect it. And they value the relationship, and there's a desire to protect it. And that's what we mean when we talk about waiting and committing yourself before you enter into intimacy. If you really want to protect something, you're not going to allow things to ruin it. And, and, and this isn't about, it isn't even so much about sin or right or wrong, although that's another conversation we can have. The motivation should be, I want to protect my relationship, so therefore I'm going to do this God's way. I'm not going to become sinful in my relationship. I'm not going to do things that are inappropriate because I love this person and I want this relationship to succeed. So you desire to protect it. He is concerned to protect the relationship from the foxes that would ruin it. Now, there are many things that can ruin a relationship. We've talked about some of them already. Uncontrolled desire. There are other obstacles. There are temptations. There's mistrust. Jealousy, pride, selfishness, unforgiveness. The list goes on and on of things that can ruin a good relationship. So you have to protect your relationship from these things, many things. He recognized that their love, the vineyard, as he calls their love, was in blossom. And therefore, it's vulnerable. See, when, when a tree is in blossom, it's vulnerable. Well, the vineyard's in blossom, it's vulnerable. This is the time where if some damage takes place during the blossom, there'll be no grapes. So if there's a freeze, and we've seen this before, sometimes in Florida, you'll have those citrus groves, right? And the trees start to bloom, and then there's a frost, an unseasonable freeze. And it, they're out there with like, you know, not hair dryers, but, you know, they're out there with, with heaters trying to keep these plants alive and keep them from, from, from shedding their blooms. And then what would happen? There'd be no oranges. So what we read, their love was in blossom. It's, it's vulnerable. He's concerned that they both maintain a mutual concern for the relationship. You should be protective of your relationship, your love relationship. And of course, a woman, I believe, a woman will feel secure only when a man desires to protect the relationship, you know, and not just protect her, but the relationship. And men should seek to protect. So there's a desire to protect. In verse 16, there's a desire to commit. Not just protect, but a desire to commit. Look at verse 16. The bride now speaks, this is from her, in soliloquy, she's speaking from her heart, We're getting the chance to hear it, but she's really speaking within her heart. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He, 
who pastures his flock among the lilies. This is how she feels. She truly desires to commit. She feels that they belong to each other. Listen, the true litmus test of a relationship is the degree of mutual commitment. There's nothing more frustrating than when you have a couple and they're dating or they're falling in love and, you know, one person's view of the relationship is, yeah, we're just hanging out, and the other person is truly in love. I mean, that would be a very awful experience, wouldn't it? Both people have to be on the same page. You can't have one person overcommitted to the relationship and the other person not really committed to the relationship and expect it to last, expect it to thrive. So having, through communication, you can communicate where you are in your commitment so that the relationship is protected. Because sometimes you might have one person that wants to go too quickly into commitment and another person that has reasons for, for why they are hesitant They may be legitimate. They may be fearful. Who knows? But through communication, you need to get on the same page. Here's what we know. Through their communication, she could say, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. Now, the description, again, is poetic. The description helps us to understand. She's stressing his shepherding role in the relationship. He's likened to a shepherd many times. Again, it's a, it's a pastoral setting. It's a countryside, and that makes sense. But that's how she feels toward him, that he is not only protecting but leading and guiding and shepherding her. In that way, she feels safe. His concern for her was obvious. It was reassuring. And his leadership was enjoyable. You know, one of the things, uh, when you're in a leadership position, one of the ways that you can gauge whether you're a good leader, do people enjoy following you? Okay, so you're at work, and you have a a position of uh, management, supervision, and the people that you're responsible for, do they find it easy to submit to you? Now, there are some people that won't submit to anyone, and that's their issue, but are you the kind of person that are easy to follow, that you're easy to follow? One of my least favorite things is when I'm in the car, we don't really have to do this anymore because we have all these navigation tools. Going back a couple decades, if you were going to a diner and a person didn't know where that diner was, you pulled out of the parking lot and you said, follow me. And that worked out well until you didn't catch the light, but they did. Or they thought it's at night and they saw the lights and they thought it was you and all of a sudden they realized it wasn't. You know, now we have all these wonderful navigation tools. So we don't bother with that. We just say, ah, 123 Main Street, and I'll see you there in a few minutes. But when I would be the person driving and knowing that someone was following me and depending on me, uh, it can be a little stressful, especially at night, because you're like, oh, did they make the light? Did they get on the highway? Did they get through the intersection? You're, You're constantly thinking, are they with me? In a relationship, that's how you need to be as a leader. any leadership position, but specifically men, but even women, in a relationship. Because women have their, their place of leadership as well. And what you need to do is make sure that you're following each other, that you're on the same page. How do you do that? Communication. Communication leads to commitment. And we see that here in the poetry. I know there's a lot here, isn't there? That's the thing about poetry. One verse can mean so much. And that's the beauty of poetry. So they had a desire to protect the relationship, and they had a desire to commit to the relationship. 
So the logical conclusion is that they had a desire to bond in relationship. And that should happen if all of these things we've talked about tonight are true in a love relationship. That is, if the relationship has good communication and all those cycles and and aspects of romance and love are in that relationship, and the individuals involved in that romantic relationship desire to protect it and commit to it, the logical conclusion, the logical outcome should be, in verse 17, a desire to bond. That is, a desire to be together physically. All right? Here's what we read. This is the bride, again, sharing how she feels. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of separation. These are images, again, of the countryside that they've been used quite a bit because, again, it's written to invoke that pastoral setting and it's written at a time where Eastern love poems were written in this way. But this desire to bond comes out in that they didn't just belong to each other. They longed to be with each other. So that's how you know in a romantic relationship, when you're starting to reach that place where you need to think about commitment, uh, true commitment that is getting married. Because if these things are happening and, you know, you're in this place, in this relationship where you truly desire to bond in this way, and it's a good relationship in the ways that we've already studied, then you shouldn't just belong to each other, you should long to be with each other. And that's when you choose to perhaps get engaged. And in the church, I don't understand very long engagements. I think they should be as short as they need to be. Uh, Of course, if you're not really ready, then that's another matter. Then, Then you take all the time you need. But if you're at this place, there's no point, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting because you're ready. And what a pastor or a counselor does with a couple in premarital counseling is walks through these principles that are in this poem, but walks through these biblical principles, these relational principles, and asks the right questions so that they can sort of gauge whether or not that relationship is where it's supposed to be. And it's not that you need a pastor or a counselor to sign off so you can get married. I mean, you can go down to City Hall and get married. But what you're looking for in premarital counseling is for someone to walk you through the areas of your relationship that may need to grow or to change. Or or you may be doing great. You just need a little bit more time. Or you may be ready to get married. And that's what premarital counseling is all about. It's designed to help you to figure those things out. And you have someone working with you, but you're really working yourself. All, All the counselor or pastor does is really just facilitate what should be good communication between the bridegroom and the bride, between those who are in love. And so that's what you figure out. Now, we've done a lot of premarital counseling, my wife and I, a lot over the years, and most of the time, things are just fine. The people are ready. But there have been many times where my counsel was not to proceed, to hit the pause button. And there were some cases where the relationship failed. It it didn't go forward because it shouldn't have. Uh, you have to allow for that. Now, those aren't my decisions. All I can do is observe and share the things that I see. But that premarital counseling is designed to discover the communication in the relationship and whether or not the level of commitment is appropriate given the communication. Does all that make sense? So this desire to bond, they had bonded emotionally. Now they desired to bond physically, sexually, of course. And what she does poetically here 
is describe her desire for him to make love to her. That's what she's saying in verse 17. Uh, you, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what she's saying. She's desiring that they be together. They both long to be married. And listen, I'm not going to say everyone longs to be married, but when you're in love, or even if you think you're in love, of course you long to be physically involved. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this poem is talking about. If you're truly where you should be, and you're protecting the relationship, and you're committed to the relationship, and you have an honest-to-goodness desire to bond, that's a good thing. And you should long to be married. She doesn't just want sex. She wants to spend the rest of their lives together, but especially, as she describes it here, an entire evening together, describing their honeymoon, perhaps. She wants to never be separated again. And that's what she alludes to with the mountains of separation. There's other um, connotations to the mountains of separation, which we'll get into as we get into chapter 4, I believe. Uh, Chapter 3 will bring us to the wedding day, Uh, And then when we get into chapter 4, we'll be talking about the honeymoon. And when we get to that, we'll discuss this further. But all of this, I think, is just really, really good to consider. I want to back up a second, because it's not just romantic relationship that we can experience, uh, as this book of the Bible describes. It's also a description of what our relationship with Christ should be like. I think you can make that application. I've, I've hesitated from doing that for you. Because I think you should be able to do that yourself. In meditation, after we study this, it'd be better for you to take the time, reread this from the angle of, I'm the bride, the bride of Christ, he's the bridegroom, and how does this challenge me in my love relationship with Jesus Christ? What is your communication like with your Lord and Savior? Do you have expectation? Are you longing to be with him? Do you communicate with him? Uh, Do you experience that in a way of patience? Uh, Do you discover more and more about the Lord? And are you rewarded through your study and discovery and worship and praise? Is that what you're experiencing? Because that's the, if you will, romance that we should be experiencing with God. That's the love that we should have, the the, uh, cycle of love that we should experience. And what's your commitment like? Because there are many people that say they're Christians, but you look at their life, there's clearly no commitment. They don't really commit their hearts at all. They just they go to church. You know how many people think they're Christians because they go to church? Going to church is better than not going to church, but it's not going to necessarily save your soul. Your soul is saved because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's based on faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. I know if you know the gospel and you've submitted your heart, you may not be perfect, but you have a love relationship with Christ. So as we think about the commitment, do you desire to protect that relationship that you have with God? Are you careful? Do you protect it? Do you commit? Do you make those commitments One of the things, it sounds so trite, it sounds so glib, but it's still true. One of the easiest ways to gauge someone's relationship with Christ, and it's not the only way, how much time do they actually spend in worship services? Now, not everybody can be out, you know, three nights a week. I know that. But, you know, there are people that, you know, church is kind of optional. 
And listen, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can be in love with Jesus and never walk through the door of a church. I'm not, I'm, let, let's be clear. I'm not saying those things. However, however, shouldn't you desire and long to be with him the way that these two lovers desire to be together? And if, if church is kind of optional and, you know, there's other things going on on a Sunday, so you decide, ah, I don't need to go to church this Sunday. What does that say, really? What does that say about your commitment or your desire to protect your commitment? Listen, I'm in church a lot. I'm a pastor. But even before I was a pastor, I was in church two or three times a week. People will often say, oh, how do, how do you know so much about the Bible? Well, believe it or not, I spend some time in the Bible. You know, I spend time in church even before I was a pastor of a church uh, or a leader in, in the church. I, I, I spend time in worship services where God can reach me and speak to my heart. Making those commitments opens up my heart to all that God has for me. So yeah, if you show me a person that they say, oh yeah, I come to Calvary Chapel, but you see them like once a month. I'm not saying they don't love the Lord. They may even have some very legitimate reasons for why they can't get here. But I can tell you one thing. You really can gauge a person's commitment by whether or not you see them. That is, in a worship service. Now, some people, I don't know why, they they like to go to multiple churches, so they may be marginally committed to four or five different churches. But I pray they're committed to the Lord. I I can't judge their heart, and I'm not trying to. I'm saying, though, that if people just sort of have a lackadaisical aspect to coming to church, it's a pretty good indication they're not that committed. Again, That is a general rule, and there are exceptions. I happen to know someone who I visit every other week who can't make it to church because he's infirmed. He can't come anymore. He used to come, but he can't anymore. And there are many people like this. And quite frankly, he's very committed to Christ. But there are sometimes reasons. But the reason shouldn't be the football game starts at 1, and I don't want to risk missing kickoff. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm just trying to be straight with you guys. So... I think it's very important that we see that we should desire to protect that relationship we have with God. We should desire to commit ourselves in that relationship. And finally, a desire to bond with Christ. That is, are you growing closer and closer to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You know, you can come to church every week, twice a week, three times a week. You can read your Bible every day. You can be committed to those things, but you don't truly bond with Christ. That is, you're not really allowing him in your heart. You're not looking to have a love relationship with him. Maybe you have a head knowledge of God, but you don't have a true heart relationship with him. See, that's ultimately important. Uh, Protecting and committing leads us to a place of bonding, and if you're not bonding, then you're not. You're not in the place that God has called you to be. So all of these challenges, I went into a little bit more application than I planned to, but all of these challenges... You know, there are challenges to romantic relationships and there are challenges to your relationship with Christ. And they're very similar because the Holy Spirit has chosen to take a romantic relationship as the allegory or example of a relationship with Christ so that we can better understand his heart for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be in love with you more and more each day. Help us to grow close to you through the study of your word, through fellowship, through praise and worship, through service, serving others, Lord. All of the things that we love to do, but we know have a purpose. They're fundamental to our walk, but they bring us closer and closer to you. Lord, that's 
That's our desire, as we even sung in worship. We want to be close, close to your heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.